0: Hello there, my name's Phil Williams and I would like to welcome you to Audio Angling, the podcast site of fishingfilmsandfacts.co.uk. Recent times have seen major breakthroughs in removing angling barriers. Not only are people now more comfortable crossing disciplines to get the best out of fishing opportunities, many are equally willing to cross over in terms of tackle and tactics, particularly from fresh water to sea, as evidenced by LRF fly fishing and lure fishing. It's not that long ago that shore based lure anglers would have been looked at as being in need of serious counselling. So just what they would have made of LRF gear and fly casting from the shore is anybody's guess. Yet these days nobody batters an eyelid as crossover angling is fast becoming the norm. I even know of a few older anglers who occasionally give it a go. In fact I've even done it myself on occasions both here and abroad. But to get a real feel for the thinking, approach and future of lure fishing, you need to speak to somebody a little further up the age spectrum, but also with a few years experience under the belt, which is exactly what I'm going to do now as I link up with Stephen Lamont. So, to help set the scene, give us a quick potted history of your fishing and how that bleeds into what we're going to explore in a bit more detail here as we go along.
1: Well, a sort of self-developed interest, age six, building dams on brooks and streams, lifting the stones up and seeing fish underneath. And then downstream of the dam, lifting stones, fish were trapped. So I was catching with my hands, bullheads and loach and things, putting them in a bucket and rushing home, showing them to a disinterested parent. I think that's where it started. Then a pal at school had an unused fishing rod as a gift which was then put into service. And again, no, nobody in my family was interested. I didn't have anybody to mentor me or to show me the ropes. I tied fishing hooks on with granny knots. I lived near a tributary of the Trent. It was a five-minute walk. So for a, a couple of summers, I caught minnows and was very happy developing an interest, walking up down the river, looking what was going on. And, yeah, I think the turning point in accidentally catching something bigger than a minnow, a chub, maybe it was about a pound, uh, I think that was the most exciting moment of my existence so far, maybe age seven, eight. And the interest developed from there. Books were bought, ideas were put into practice from reading the books, and a couple of the school pals, they developed a similar interest, and we went off Tom Sawyer-style, rambling along. In many areas of the river, they were not controlled by angling uh, clubs. There wasn't such a thing as a peg. You had to catch the undergrowth and um, make your own way to the river. That sense of exploration, exploring, seeing big fish in the river, again, probably a similar trajectory to, to most anglers. I think for, for the majority of the rest of my life, fishing-wise, I've been trying to recreate certain moments in, of fishing in my childhood where at age 10 I've got a photograph of myself with a double-figure pike that I caught. The thing looks as tall as me. I'm holding it up on a spring balance. Moments like that, you chase them, I think, in your adult life
0: never unfortunately recapturing them.
1: Well, you do your best, you get close. But, you know, as a teenager, when you're experimenting, when you're going out, learning how to socialize and drinking, when you're experimenting with other ways of finding excitement, uh, I don't think anything quite hits the spot (laughs) of um, those sort of experiences. You know, particularly when they're quite hard won, unexpected. So yeah, the course fishing thing, I was spoilt for choice. There were streams, there was endless miles of this river. There were gravel pits, there were farmers' ponds. And some of the river was managed and you'd get weekend fishermen, match fishermen coming. But if you walked away from the parking spots, the river was unmanaged you felt as if you were the first one seeing and fishing in certain spots. All of which would
0: ultimately guide you into the world of fly fishing.
1: Yeah well, the closed season, you know, when I was maybe sort of 12, 13, uh, it was a terrible time because I couldn't fish. However, I probably developed more watercraft then because I would take a bag of bread and climb the trees and get fish feeding. That. A lot of fish would come up from the main river, which I think at that period of time was quite polluted. They'd come up this tributary, so there'd be a lot of fish, a lot more fish, than the rest of the year. You could feed and get the fish almost tame. Uh, You know, I remember hanging off willow trees and hand-feeding the chub on floating bread. So you could watch the fish feed, you could uh, see their behaviour. But anyway, that period... You couldn't fish, and I didn't enjoy the not fishing bit. And there was a local farmer who had a a pond, a gravel pit full of enormous trout, and I would sneak up to this pond, nick some of his uh, trout feed, and I'd feed the fish. Very occasionally having to run off as he came down the road to tell me off. Anyway, that developed into a relationship where he would let me go and feed the fish. But he was a fly fisherman. I think he became paranoid that I was uh, developing an unhealthy interest which may lead to poaching of his fish. So he took me fly fishing and whilst he thrashed the water I used one of his rods, climbed out on a fence post and dangled a fly in watching the little perch and the roach chase the fly. And that was a bit of a turning point because something that wasn't a, a maggot or a worm you could induce interest in the fish through the movement of the fly so something clicked there and then you know another year or two down the line i was fly fishing and this was a perfect excuse to go down on my river in the close season i justified perhaps wrongly that if i fly fished if a bailiff came or somebody came to tell me off i could say that i was fishing for trout i don't think there were any trout in this river but so i developed an interest in trying to catch chub and dace on fly. I developed my casting skills, again, untutored. I realized that the shot flies were, were not fit for purpose, so I then developed an interest in the fly tying. So I could tie smaller flies to catch the chub and the dace. Um, dace are very difficult to catch on dry fly. They're, they're, I think they're quicker than grayling. So this was in the melting pot. And when I owned a car and got a job, I then joined that syndicate where the farmer had taken me, and that's where my fly fishing education really began. Funnily enough, my first mentor was a fly fisherman. I met there. um, My very first visit, I drove through a gate that was open. Because I didn't close the gate, a fella smoking a pipe in a tweed jacket came and told me off and he was the person who took me out on the boat and for several years allowed me the freedom to develop my interest for fly fishing and again when many people start I call it sort of fishmongering you go and you're determined to catch your limit on any method of fly it becomes a bit unsporting in a way whereas with this particular fella he'd done all of that he'd around the world. He'd fish for salmon and we were fishing at this big reservoir with very lightweight rods with dry flies, home tied flies. And despite there being a rule at the time where you had to kill and take home your fish, he would quite often knock his fish accidentally off and return them so that he could carry on fishing. So an early pioneer of catch and release at the time. But, you know, I'd tie flies. He would be the person who would be excited in seeing my efforts. We'd test them out. Uh, He had a fantastic bookshelf of fishing books, which I used to borrow. And, of course, listen to his stories when he fished in the 50s and 60s for salmon. All these little ideas were germinating and stimulating my attention. Of course, all these things were in the fly angling press as well. So after many years of doing that, I then started to travel with the, with the fly-fishing, for experiences outside of reservoir trout. Again, I still course-fished on and off throughout my fly-fishing interest, but at the height of that, when I was working in a nearby town in the summer, I'd go fly-fishing five, six times a week. At five or six o'clock, I would race my car at breakneck speeds down to the boathouse, and I'd be fishing from six to ten p m on the reservoir, I became obsessed by it. I loved it. You know you could see pods of cruising fish in this particular reservoir. A lot of them would be overwintered. You could cast a dry fly to individual fish, and the balance of the tackle was getting lighter. The flies were getting smaller, and funnily enough, the fish were getting bigger and this particular syndicate, it was mainly older men, you know fifty five to retirement. I think there was two of us that were in our twenties that were fishing because, as the older members die off, there were not the younger members there to carry the thing on now, I think, as I'm aware, it's an all method um It really was quite an experienced bit of place where the membership in terms of numbers was limited the reservoir being several hundred acres, you often felt you had the place to yourself. Again, this sort of feeds into my experience as a child having endless miles of river with nobody fishing there. That developed into travelling, reading this fella's books. I went to go salmon fishing. I borrowed a stronger rod, trout rod, from him, I tied salmon flies. In the age before the internet, I wrote to several fishing hotels on the north coast. A young couple had taken one over. He wrote back to me. It was very helpful. And I went up there. And again, completely undergunned. I didn't really know what I was doing. People were dressing for dinner. I was in my jeans. There wasn't that many All the volatariats from the Midlands. It was the colonel. The Earl and all that sort of thing. Anyway, this uh, the week that I went in the spring. They'd had a period of time when nobody'd caught anything for about two weeks, and then, of course, by a great fluke, I managed to hook a double-figure spring salmon. Sort of unheard of when you first go up. It normally takes a few visits. I blame that occurrence on the atmospheric conditions, the weather, and the hotel went bonkers. I didn't organise a ghillie, that seemed to be the dumb thing that you went out with somebody. So that became an interest for the small fishing community there that I'd gone up and done it myself. And of course the first thing I did once I'd caught this fish was report back to my pal back in the Midlands. That was very exciting for me, having asked his advice. and been told his stories. He thought I was mad. He thought the time for that sort of thing had passed. I read books on his bookshelf by Charles Ritz, the hotelier. I would think nothing of driving across to Austria to fish on a big chalk stream. And again, I did this on my own. I wasn't aware that my contemporaries there who were much older, who'd done this sort of thing before, would not be interested in that sort of thing. Then that interest of travelling broadened into the saltwater thing. In the magazines, particularly the American ones, you would see America having more interesting species to go for, I suppose. In terms of the hierarchy of your fly fishing, as a UK fly fisherman, you might start on trout. Uh, You might work your way up to chalk streams, then to trout on more interesting chalk streams abroad, such as New Zealand. But then you'd go to salmon and from salmon you then end up saltwater fishing for things like bonefish and tarpon Um, so i did that i went to uh, where was it mexico took my reservoir fishing gear and i wasn't a wealthy individual i would always try and organize these trips through the back door i wouldn't go with a you know uk-based sports fishing organization because i couldn't afford to do that so I'd go on a package holiday, I'd try and find locals that could help me out. You know, half the holiday was wasted really in doing that. But I suppose that, you know, that uh, Atlantic was a high point in my fly fishing experience. But the first bonefish that I caught, I don't think it gets much better than that. Uh, that is absolutely unbelievable real sort of smoking as the metal is about to catch fire and tarpon, tarpon, small tarpon on on that gear as well. My folks live out in Wales. I then developed an interest after the salt water, I then developed an interest in the sea trout fishing on the Welsh rivers. And of course you're very close to uh, the mouth, the vestuaries where you're if you know what you're doing, you could probably bass fish. But that came a bit later. I'm not quite sure how that occurred. I met by accident a keen bass law fisherman on one of these Welsh trips and got chatting to him. And then I went fishing with him, I, me with a fly rod, him with a law fishing rod. He was much more experienced, he caught bass. And funnily enough, on that very first time when I went with him, uh, the fly caught more. (laughs) Going back to a period where the tackle was quite rudimentary, he was casting fishing lures that did not cast very well, using line that was thick, and again, that didn't help the casting. They would mostly use metal lures, such as Tobies and Dexter wedges, which... You have to fish fairly quickly, you know, otherwise they sink like a brick. They're fairly limiting in their action, whereas with the fly you could control the depth of the fly. It it was a bit more versatile. So that perhaps is why on that occasion it caught more. But again, with more foreign trips, with the fly rod, there were occasions where the fly rod was not suitable. I'd be borrowing gear to then lure fish. If you're in mangroves or areas where fly casting is limited, again these seeds were sown that um, on occasions law fishing gives you a bit more access. The area where I fished in Wales when I got into the fly fishing for the bass, there were other people doing it, one or two people doing it. At a later stage I did see articles appearing in the fly fishing press about it too. But you'd go down on half a dozen occasions and we're fishing on a fairly shallow reef area and it didn't take a lot for the conditions to be blown out, for the fishing to be made impossible for fly fishing. With low fishing it was a little bit more versatile. You could get away with fishing in conditions that were not suitable where you couldn't cast the fly. To dovetail the next
0: part of the interview into your past history... Give us your take on the development and current status of saltwater fly fishing, and more particularly, lure fishing here in the UK.
1: I don't know if I'm that qualified to answer that particular question, as being a fairly voracious reader of the magazine's ideas were were there from the foreign angling press in terms of the fly fishing development. I mean, I was aware when I was doing it that there was a guide who was pioneering it on the south coast on boat trips. And again, I imagine that team may have brought that back from the stripe of bass fishing in the USA. As for the law angling, I'm not sure. I think places like obviously Japan and France were a bit ahead of the game. And the Internet has brought about access for anglers who are already doing that sort of thing to get more suitable tackle. You know, when I started to experiment with with lure fishing for the bass, for example, through the influence of the Palamet whilst fly fishing, he was constantly looking ahead or trying to get the latest bits and pieces. You know, you become obsessed by that. You collect, like you tie flies, you collect lures. With the internet, then these people would then order from abroad. The tackle retailers were not doing suitable equipment, so they would import stuff.
0: But of the two, it's the lure fishing that really seem to have caught on. So why is that?
1: I don't know. I don't know why the lure fishing thing's caught on. I assume it's because I think, for example, the bass is about the most exciting sports fish we've got in the UK. When people start with another method and then they try different types of angling, that information is out there. You can make that transition a little quicker. The information is out there to make that Process easier, and now with the press and the tackle trade giving more choice, but importing the better Japanese stuff, then it gives you a best chance to catch.
0: The big question is were these people cranks or far sighted trendsetters?
1: Why catch a flounder on a 14 foot beach casting rod when you can use a seven foot spinning rod? You know, my spinning gear now is lighter in weight than my fly gear. On the chalk streams, I'm using a, a four and a five weight fly rod. On the salt water, I was using an eight weight, and now the gear I'm using the one thousand size reels, hand built rods. I'm getting made for the purpose. It's lighter than the fly gear. To me, the direct connection that you get through fly fishing um, I mean it was rare if somebody develops an interest in fly fishing they tend to stick with it rather than coming back to course fishing where generally you put the rod down nowadays you fix it to an electronic device and to me that's sort of indirect the law fishing gear now is to me is as direct as the fly fishing I mean you can feel with the right setup the wriggling of the vibrating of your lure the actual action of your lure through the feel of your rod and of course the take that you get from something like a bass there's no going back once you you've felt that it even to me puts the trout fishing a step back i mean it's pretty thrilling to hook a five pound trout on a dry fly on a reservoir on light gear but to hook a similar sized bass in a foaming surf on light gear than the majority of my bass fishing now I do on the surface. So you see the bass coming and exploding on the surface. So it's, it's replicating the thrill of my dry fly fishing.
0: Excitement apart, what are the advantages and disadvantages of lure fishing around the course of the UK?
1: Through the shore fishing for bass, that then developed into an interest into boat fishing. And so from the shore on the boat, you can catch, I think you can catch any sea fish on a lure. Uh, we've been on the boat trips where we've had up to a dozen species of fish, maybe that's a slight exaggeration, but some quite unusual ones you can get in the right circumstances. So, for example, with the law fishing, you're very direct to the law. The thrill of the take, to me, when you've got no added weight to the line, is somehow purer, more exciting um, than if you're ledgering with bait. The bait fishing, in many circumstances, is probably more productive, but then we don't do the angling to make it easier, otherwise we get bored.
0: Now I know from chatting with you earlier that you live in Hertfordshire and that is not exactly the most convenient location for an angling all-rounder. And there, in common with a group of like-minded friends, you've set up a group which works together on various aspects of fishing you're all interested in.
1: Yeah, well, again, it wasn't myself. It was a friend who, again, a bit more IT savvy than myself. He, I think, for reasons of just developing his interest in fishing by sharing trips and gaining knowledge from other people he started on the social media a group and we met i think originally for fly fishing and we found that the fly fishing sort of possibilities local to us was a little bit limited uh, and we ended up doing the saltwater fly fishing as well and that later developed into taking your law as well as your fly rod and then just law fishing But we're of similar ages, we're sort of mid-40s, we've got young kids. Um, To be able to have a group trip, it commits you in a way that with family responsibilities is sometimes difficult. When you go into a new mark, if there's a number of you fishing differently, the information that you develop is better in a group nowadays, where social media is used throughout the day by everybody, these possibilities, if you want to do a particular type of fishing, there'll be a group out there where you can develop further your your interest. It's a difficult thing, you get a a large group of people, but not many of them will actually step up to do the organising, so you'll get one or two who are sort of leading that aspect. That's the difficulty of, of the groups, I suppose. Uh, it all tends to fall on a person. But for the majority of us, it gets us out. It's a handy excuse to have to your partner to say that it's your mates that are going and you must go with them, rather than on the day saying, I'd like to go fishing, see you in 24 hours. Seems to be a universal problem. This social group, it really has developed uh, Interest abilities and understanding the type of fishing we're we're doing just through the social interaction, through sharing information. And if, for example, if you're out on a boat, uh, you can set up different lines of of approach through your pals to see which one works. It's quite nice to share time with people that you know there's not going to be a competitive aspect, or even if there is, it's understood and yeah. If you go down from from Hertfordshire to go and fish on the south coast, you always have the difficulty of the conditions. You, know, you might make that commitment and journey, and then the shore fishing is washed out by the weather. The boat fishing, I think, was developed because your opportunities are a bit broader. A boat trip could be canceled the night before, but you know if, if you're going out that your options are a bit better, perhaps, than on the shore.
0: Sticking with the small boat fishing for a moment, as I'm a small boat angler myself, that aspect particularly interests me. But not everyone is fortunate enough to own their own boat. And from experience, I know that any tactic or approach which deviates from the norm can be difficult to do on a charter boat. Unless, of course, you either have the boat to yourself or fill it up with like-minded people
1: don't suppose enough of us were interested to make the commitment to charter a whole boat, but, you know, the two or three of us would go and share the boat with other regulars. Many skippers, they've got a huge knowledge and understanding, and then when you turn up and say you want to do your own thing and disregard completely everything they have done, some of them don't take too kindly to it. And then even worse than that, other people you share in the boat with have that attitude. You know, you're paying customer to the charter skipper, but to the other people on the boat, you're a potential nuisance in that your new method may tangle with their familiar method. Anyway, so we started to do that. So we would go bass fishing on a bass fishing trip where half the boat was doing live baiting and we were doing what we call vertical jigging where there's no extra weight just the weight is in the head of your lure you're using very small light rods very thin braid trying to judge the weight of your lures so that you can fish vertically not at a necessarily an angle so we did this i had a go at the live baiting because i assumed if i want to catch a big bass this may be a better method but Half an hour into that, it just wasn't for me. To me, it felt like I was towing a washing line. So there was a big uh, ball-shaped float. There was a big eight-ounce weight. There was a 20-foot leader. I couldn't feel anything in terms of if a bass had taken. I felt that I would be towing the tackle, not just the fish. Now, that may be a better and more productive method, but to a fly fisherman... It's, doesn't do it for me uh, anyway so for example on days like that the, the very first trip I remember we went to the half of the boat that was doing the established method I think they caught five or six fish and the law fishing contingent I caught about 30 Now the majority of those bass were smaller in size than the live bait caught ones but you know there was some genuine interest from the other anglers particularly when your rod is bent over and the biggest bass of that trip was caught on the law as well so then that gained some acceptance from the skipper we then got an interest after coming back with those results enough interest to charter the boats but i remember going on these charter trips where it was told to us that we would not catch bass on those yellow lines so we fish with braid which is brightly colored we fished with skippers who are then determined to fish alongside you with a more established method to show that that is more productive. So there's been lots of fairly horrible experiences. However, through chopping and changing, we have then found skippers who are as keen as us on the method. I mean, we were putting bass back as well on the original trips. That was very unusual for the general charter crowd. To see us returning bass, that wasn't the done thing. All these things are quite amusing. But yeah, through trial and error we find skippers who are keen on the method. And it's very productive in the day. And great fun.
0: Now I think might be a good point to talk tackle and tactics.
1: Well, for the boat fishing, the thinness of your line is very important. The rod you use is important. You have to be able to feel where your lure is in the water. You don't want a big bow of line making your contact with the lure indirect. In deeper water, you can do what we call vertical jigging, where you're basically fishing under the boat, which is drifting quite quickly. You have to try and figure how to make that law because it's you know a big heavy thing if it's got uh forty fifty grams of lead in it, you have to figure out a way of making that look realistic in terms of the current the drift the wind speed so there's i think there's quite an art to that the rod that you use is very important if your rod is too soft you won't feel what is happening You don't want your lure to drag along the bottom, otherwise it will immediately get snagged and you'll lose it. So you carry a range of weights and also lures that may be more streamlined, may be suitable for faster drifts, slower drifts. Yeah, so these are things like minnows. These are things that we were picking up from France where they have varying weights of head, a jig head, which... Would be anything from 20 to 120 grams then to that you attach a soft law body this has been developed where you can buy these things combined but originally you had to match a head to a body so you want that law despite having a very heavy leaded head you want it to look realistic Uh, in the water it has to have some life to it if it is too heavy then it won't have that sort of life. So you you swap and change and you experiment with the weight and the shape of the laws. Uh, Of course, there's colour to add into that, but that's a a subject up for, for debate, isn't it? I don't want to stick my neck out and suggest my personal preferences.
0: I'm sure people would find it helpful if you did.
1: For me personally, I like natural fish shades of lure, something with a slightly darker back and a pale, milky sort of underside, ones that look natural to the prey. In conditions where the water is not clear, then I would put something brighter on, just so that it's easier to see. But really, I fish with one or two natural colours. I don't give myself the choice to be confused. Um, You know, you won't necessarily catch anything if you're constantly swapping and changing
0: and presumably size also has a role to play.
1: Yeah, that's important for many reasons. Sometimes you might go big so that the vibration from the lure is more noticeable. Me personally, I fish as small as I can. Big and small are subjective
0: terms. So how small is small for you?
1: For small, me would be, you know, 100 millimetres. Big would be 200 millimetres, usually something in between, so an average might be 12, 14, 16 centimetres in length. Um, That size law in weight may range from 15, 20 grams would be light, and 100, 150 grams would be heavy. Our average depth on the south coast bass trips might be 60, 40, 50, 60 foot. Sometimes we fish to 180 foot. I think that if you're in shallower water, the vertical jigging is not very successful because the bass are not keen on... They're scared by the boats. So you then do something called traction jigging where you're casting away from the boat. That's something that, again, has to develop your skill more because in vertical jigging you can feel the bottom. That gives you an indication of your depth. In the traction thing, you have to be very careful with letting the law hit the bottom because you're more likely to snag so you're doing a similar jigging thing but away from the boat again this is stuff that the french have been doing for many years and catching huge bass on it when i fish whitby
0: we use soft lures on a six foot drop or a few foot above a suitable lead which we jig now obviously cod are bottom feeders but so too are bass at times so might this not be another way of approaching them in deep water
1: I mean there's an advantage in the way that you're fishing in that the unweighted law will probably look more realistic for the majority of the time. There's an added skill of having to try to make the law which includes the weight in it look realistic. There's no reason why you can't fish that and bump it along the bottom if you're not fishing on reef and snaggy ground. you can actually trail it along the advantage is that when you get a take from your cod on the law only method it will be different to when you've got an additional weight again coming back to fly fishing i started when i was reservoir fishing with i think a nine weight rod i imagine that you could cast further the fish were always further away then several years later i'm on a four and five weight i'm not no longer wading into the water i'm casting a shorter distance and the lighter weight gear is more sporting to me so you have to give it a try and see maybe with the rigs that you're using there's some disadvantage And if you're bumping a, a lead along the bottom that may be scaring fish perhaps in comparison with the other method the way to do it is to get somebody who's keen on that and to fish alongside you to see how it compares do you also
0: use these techniques where applicable from the shore
1: sort of yes i've got one other thing to add by the way to your question about the way that you're fishing for the cod up in the northeast um if you're using i I don't know say five six ounce weights for example to get your laws down to the depth that you're fishing your tackle is stepped up to cope with that obviously Now, if, for example, you're using an 8-ounce weight, I feel confident that I could come along and I could use 2-ounce maximum to get to the depth that you're fishing. And, of course, you can step down your tackle. You can lighten the weight of your tackle. It makes it more pleasurable. Playing your fish direct on lighter, more sporting gear. This is a possibility now with the development of these modern vertical jigging lures.
0: I've done the ultralight bass fishing for stripers myself over at Cape Cod but circumstances were very different over there. You couldn't necessarily get away with the same in many of the situations we face over here.
1: Well again the thinness of the braid we're using if you saw it you would laugh at it as being preposterous. The gear I bring on the skippers have just looked at me as if I was absolutely mental that might be all right for the canal Um, What the hell are you doing Bring it on board? But yes, you're right to feel um, suspicious that that gear might work. However, go on the internet and look at what the Japanese are doing with their jigging, the depths at which they're jigging, and the light gear that they're using. Do you know that vertical jigging with the shad type laws that we were doing for bass... We're doing it over features where there are drop-offs, gullies and things that you have to be able to go down and up and ride. But this is developing into the slow jigging, which is a method that was used, as I understand, many years ago, speed jigging with much heavier gear, very heavy gear. But now the slow jigging for wrecking looks the way that it'll go. So I reckon in another 10 years, your charter group that goes out, that's the, the gear that they'll be using
0: so back to the shore fishing
1: yeah the shore fishing I use very small metals I use what we call soft lures where you can use them unweighted and you can bury the hook inside them to fish them weedless so you can fish over ground that uh, even with fly fishing I don't think you get away with um, you can fish them through weed and over rocks and what not then I fish with hard laws too, plugs, as we call it. I collect, I buy them over when I'm bored over the uh, winter time and I'm not fishing. I buy too many of them. I collect them like shoes, like well, some people collect shoes. Uh, I fish all of those types of laws depending on the circumstance. I mainly, for the bass fishing, when I'm shore fishing, use surface laws. These have developed where you can cast them a long distance, which means you don't necessarily have to be in the water to get out to where the fish are. And to me, that's a very exciting method of fishing. And what about poppers? Yeah, so I tend not to use poppers as much as surface lures, which rather than making an explosion of water... Popping, you just work the law to look like a dying, confused fish. I always associate the poppers with more exciting species,
0: yeah, like tuna and gts
1: yeah, it just it just looks to me a bit odd because I've never seen a natural bait fish in the u k do stuff like that, although many people use them, and you can use much. I use small versions the things that are about four centimetres long. So the pot that they give obviously is not very big, but big enough on a very calm sea to interest fish.
0: I remember doing a similar interview to this with Irish bass guy John Quinlan, who says that soft plastics have transformed his bass fishing on account of their ability to be fished so slowly in such shallow water and over the snaggiest terrain imaginable, none of which was achievable before.
1: Well, also, when I'm on holiday with my family, I fish off a pier. There are a dozen other anglers, some of them holiday makers, others keener and I'll escape for an hour. These anglers may have a longer time to fish, so they're all bait fishing. they may catch the odd little ras or garfish. I'll go down for half an hour with my law gear and I'll have several pollock, a couple of garfish. I can do the drop shotting where you will get ras on every drop. So they're fishing, to me, very heavy gear. It's not as productive. So the two or three years I've been going to this particular holiday spot, in the last year or two, I've then spotted other anglers like myself doing the LRF, as they call it, with a small spinning rod and a very small pack. So it's catching on. People are starting to realise that... Um, it can be more productive. You know, you can keep your lure rod in the back of the car, you don't need to source bait, you don't need to carry masses of tackle with you. In modern life, you might not have as much time as you might have got going back, economically speaking, perhaps. So, over ground that you were talking about, I cite fish for wrasse. You can see into the water. You're fishing small pools may maybe two or three foot deep. Very exciting, a bit like chalk stream fishing for the trout. You can spot fish, you can cast toward them, you're clambering over rocks. You won't find any other type of angling taking place in that sort of ground, because they'll lose gear, I suppose.
0: All of that said, what would be your must-have lure selection?
1: if I lived by the sea and I could test out all of my, I'm too embarrassed to tell you how many laws are crammed away in my cupboard, if I could test out all those laws then I would hone my selection into half a dozen because I imagine carrying more may allow under the circumstances me to catch when I don't know the situation so I might have to change there might be a different law it's very difficult, I always carry loads of them around with me but if I look back on a season, it will probably be about half a dozen maximum that I end up using because I know I've caught, because I know a particular conditions will suit a particular law. So go on, which are they then? I'm not telling you. Uh, so I like to use very small metal lures. I enjoy using those. So they feature, these are things that may be five, ten grams. You can catch a range of species on them. You can catch mackerel garfish. You can catch ras and bass on them. I always carry surface lures. So a big noisy surface law for certain conditions. A very subtle surface law for calmer conditions. And I carry lures which fish at different depths. So normally I carry a dozen hard lures. Maybe two dozen sometimes. Half of those will usually be surface lures. The vast majority of the other ones will be lures that fish just underneath the surface so you can get away with using them over shallower, rougher ground without fear of losing them. I carry, perhaps nowadays, more of the soft plastic lures. So things that look like worms, things with paddle tails. These type of lures are starting to crowd out the law boxes that I carry with me. They're so versatile, because you can add or subtract weight to them. So I'm perhaps doing more of that and less of the hard law fishing.
0: What about ancillary and hand tackle choices to get the best from both the lures and the fish?
1: Fortunately, when I met my law fishing mentor when I was fly fishing, he had hand built rods and he introduced me to a maker in, in Stoke on Trent This was, again, I feel, a key turning point in the law fishing overtaking the fly fishing. Since using the rods that he develops, I personally, when I pick up a mass-produced rod, I can't compare the two. I don't want to fish with the mass-produced one. The balance of the rod, the fact that the rod is incredibly stiff, so... If something knocks into your line a few yards away it's like an electric shock through your arm and shoulder very sensitive yet strong enough to cast a certain weight ratio of lure so me personally getting a hand built rod specific to the weight and type of lure fishing you're going to do has been important as has the um, braid which I originally used 15 20 years ago In comparison with what I'm using now that adds such a difference to the the range of your casting but you have to develop some skill in being able to manage it I'm not a man of great means if I was I would have better reels than I own I tend to find that even with washing them after a day saltwater fishing they'll last a season or two before bearings have to be changed and reels will eventually explode So I'm sort of mid-range, I suppose. Reels that are specifically developed for braid are a massive advantage.
0: We're talking fixed spools here, I take it?
1: Yes, so fixed spools. I like a particular brand of reel because I found that they last longer for me. Which is? Shimano. (laughs) That's just a personal preference. But now there are reels designed for that purpose by many manufacturers.
0: What about the rods that paired up with?
1: My first rod was sort of a ten to thirty grams. Then I went fishing to the Canaries. I got a rod made up that should cast up seventy-five grams. You can cast poppers with it. Then I'm getting lighter and lighter rods. I got one specifically for ras fishing, so that. Uh, there's a bit of give when the ras picks up a bit like a perch, you don't want it to there's a, you know, you don't be 100% directly in contact with your lure, it's exciting when you're more in contact but it has disadvantages in that fish has quicker reactions than you you can watch the perch and things like wrasse attack a lure, spit it out and go off before you've even registered visually what's happening I've even got a rod developed now for the canal which I fish one, two, three gram maximum weighted lures on. But the rod is very light, will cast a 10 gram metal, I reckon 80 yards. I'm a very keen advocate on shorter rods. My rods are seven-ish foot long. I personally think it's a disadvantage in fishing with longer rods. I mean you can cast perhaps, it's an advantage for casting. But you want to be as much in contact with the law, with the feel. If the, the rod is longer, I personally think that that is a disadvantage in terms of your feel of what is happening to the reaction of the law through the rod.
0: Now I know you're a braid fan, but what do you tie to it? Do you favour standard mono or is it fluorocarbon?
1: I always put nylon fluorocarbon on just for a bit of abrasion resistance. The braid I'm using, if it comes into contact with rock, will melt like butter. There's the disadvantage. So I'll put a a trace, in effect, of of nylon on. It gives you confidence, because it's clearer than the brighter braid. And a fish's gill plate, thin stroke, snags, it gives you a bit more resistance.
0: What kind of breaking strains are we talking about here?
1: I'll fish as low as £10 for sea fishing, but £20 is a good average. You know, when you're fishing with lures that may have cost you 20 quid, there's a little bit of paranoia there uh, in terms of you don't necessarily want to snag them and lose them. But it depends on the circumstance. If you're fishing cleaner ground, then why not go lighter? It has advantages. But yeah, that's sometimes with boat fishing, I, I'm using £25, £30 fluorocarbon.
0: Any other ancillary equipment?
1: I always take a knife of some description for emergency use if you get hooked and you need to cut your line and a pair of pliers which double up as uh, scissors for unhooking quickly. I practice catch and return for 95% of my sea fishing angling. And again, you want those for emergency use perhaps, safety use. So those two are on my belt a tape measure nowadays I don't bother with the spring balance for weighing if you catch a decent fish and you want to know it's where you can measure it and estimate and I don't use a net this is from previous fishing histories where you know I've caught I've fished for Marcia where you don't use a landing net but you can cope with landing you know, enormous fish without the need of net so I try and lighten the load it depends on the circumstance of course otherwise not an awful lot phone camera and Polaroid specs and a hat. I'm a big one for when you're casting, be it fly fishing or lure fishing, covering your eyes and using a peak cap is a safety issue as well as being able to see better into the water.
0: Me being quite a bit older than you, I can well remember the old days, while at the same time, I was also around to see the transition towards lure fishing. But we're not fully there yet. So what else is it to come, and how in the future will saltwater lure fishing develop long after I've hung up my rods for the final time?
1: Um, more finesse. I see the future of the sea fishing being more in terms of the conservation aspect rather than the tackle and fishing development. I think that's where the future development needs to be. You know I often, when I'm shore fishing, um am competing with gill nets and what not. I have a fantasy that we can develop regulations similar to the the striped bass fishing in in America and the inshore bass fishing in Ireland. So I don't know the answer to your question. I, I don't know how it will develop. I hope more sea anglers will experiment with these techniques. I'm sure when they do that they will develop more of an interest in them. Well,
0: again, being much older than you... I've also seen firsthand the huge changes in people's attitudes towards fish and conservation and can see no reason at all now we're out of the EU why our fish stocks should not become increasingly better conserved. Certainly I hope so. It's very much in the British psyche to do just that. After the recording session was finished, having had time to think about some of the earlier responses, Stephen kindly sent through a list of lures I had been asking about earlier. From the shore, his favoured floating patterns came as Imer, Duo and Saurus, in particular Salt Skimmer, Realist Pencil and Small Asturi. For metal lures it was 5 and 12 gram Ima guns with 100mm assist crazy Eels in blue. Soft baits, Yamamoto Senko, various handmade sun slickers, 3 inch Sawamura Shads and 2.5 inch fish arrows in blue silver. For subsurface hard lures it was duo sprint, duo press bait and I'm a hound in various sizes. And from the boat, fish black minnows in blue, crazy eels in various colours and weights and scad colours Ilex shads. So many thanks to Stephen Lamont for all of that.